the headlines tonight. Putin takes power, eats Yeltsin's lunch. North Korea goes south. And Victoria chooses Ottawa. She's got the logging man's vote. Plus, coming up, we ask, will Elton John's turkeys squabble this Christmas? Those are the headlines. I'm out of here. News bang. Pushing the envelope of news to keep the truth from falling out. Edesistit in the Stoom. 1999. In a sensational twist of political backflips, Russian President Boris Yeltsin has resigned, leaving the Kremlin reeling and the vodka on ice. Entering stage right is none other than former KGB agent and part-time spy novel cover model Vladimir Putin. The year is 19,999 and the world trembles as Putin assumes the mantle of acting president, a role with all the power of a kebab shop toilet attendant. Putin, known for his steely glare and even steelier abs, wastes no time consolidating his grip on power. He quickly sets about purging his enemies, or anyone who's ever looked at him funny in Ikea. His iron-fisted rule draws comparisons to Stalin, but with better taste in tracksuits. Yeltsin, meanwhile, seen swigging from a bottle of Stoliknaya in Red Square, mutters something about meddling kids before being whisked away by burly men in trench coats. The world watches on with bated breath as Putin begins his seemingly never-ending tenure atop the Russian bear, I mean, political landscape. Mm, 1950. The year was 1950, and the Korean War raged on like a house on fire that had been doused in petrol and set alight again. North and South Korea, both still reeling from their messy divorce, started brawling over who got to keep Wonju, a city neither of them could even pronounce. The first battle of Wonju was like a game of risk gone wrong, with more casualties than an open-legged night at the local brothel. In the second battle of Wonju, the UN decided to referee but ended up joining in, siding with South Korea because they had better rations. China and Russia stepped in to help North Korea, claiming they were just passing by, but conveniently forgetting their camouflage gear. The war raged on for three years until everyone realized they were all Asian and called it a draw. A truce was signed with an armistice note that read, yeah, we're done with this. 1857. On this day in 1857, Queen Victoria, known for her love of corgis and never smiling, made a royal decree to rival any other. She decreed that Ottawa, a small lumber town in the frozen wastes of Canada, would become the capital of the British colony. Why she chose Ottawa over more glamorous contenders like Toronto or Vancouver is still a mystery. Some say it was because she'd lost a bet with Prince Albert over who could eat more poutine, Others claim it was because she'd once met a charming lumberjack called Sven who'd given her the eye. Whatever the reason, on this day in history, one Canadian backwater became an even bigger backseat driver to the empire. The locals were so chuffed, they named their currency after her, the Victorian, which soon plummeted in value due to its unfortunate resemblance to Monopoly money. But for now, God save the Queen, and God help anyone who stole her parking space at Tim Hortons. A news bing, a fresh coat of truth on a worn-out lie. For a weather forecast that's as unpredictable as the world itself, here's Shakanaka Giles with the rundown on what to expect as we bid adieu to 2023. Tomorrow, as we bid farewell, 
to 2023, the weather will have a few tricks up its sleeve. In the southeast, a biting chill will have you reaching for your warmest coat, like a burglar caught in the headlights. The Midlands will be wrapped in a blanket of fog, as if the land itself is trying to hide from the passing year. In the north, the wind will howl like a pack of wolves, hungry for the new year. And for those in the southwest, expect a touch of frost, a gentle reminder that even in the darkest times, there's beauty to be found. In summary, a nippy send-off, a foggy farewell, a howling goodbye, and a frosty finish. Stay warm, everyone, and that's all the weather. Eldum. 2006. The year 2006 has witnessed a fierce confrontation between the transitional federal government and the Islamic Courts Union in the Somalian town of Jilib. This battle, one of many in the ongoing conflict, aimed to seize control of the town and block access to Kismayo, the Islamic Courts Union's final stronghold. With a population of approximately 100,000, Jilib has become the epicenter of a struggle that transcends its borders. Now, to provide further insight into this escalating conflict, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable, who is reporting live from the heart of the chaos. The sun has set, but the war has not. The battle for Jilib rages on as the forces of the transitional federal government, backed by the might of Ethiopia, seek to crush the last vestiges of the Islamic Courts Union. The streets are a bloodbath as the two sides exchange fire in a deadly dance of death. The sound of gunfire echoes through the night as the men fight for control of this strategic town. The people of Jilib are caught in the crossfire, their homes reduced to rubble and their lives shattered. But still the fighting continues as the two sides refuse to back down. The transitional federal government believes that victory here will pave the way for a final assault on Kismayo, the last stronghold of the Islamic Courts Union. But the ICU is not going down without a fight. They have vowed to defend Jilib to the last man, and they are doing just that. The streets are a battlefield as the two sides clash in a brutal and bloody conflict. The people of Jilib are caught in the middle, their lives hanging in the balance. But still the fighting continues as the two sides seek to gain the upper hand. The battle for Jilib is far from over and the people of this town are paying the price. Brian Bastable, Newsbang reporting live from the battlefield. 1993. In a year marred by tragedy, 1993 witnessed the harrowing tale of Brandon Tina, whose life was brutally cut short in an act of violence that shook the very foundations of Humboldt, Nebraska. This heinous crime against a transgender man galvanized a nation, prompting fervent calls for the strengthening of hate crime legislation across the United States. The poignant narrative of Tina's struggle and ultimate fate has been immortalized in film, serving as a stark reminder of the journey towards justice and equality. For more on this story and its lasting impact, 
we turn to our correspondent Ken Shit. Tonight, we're going back to a time when cowboys wore wigs and skirts and life was as tough as a rodeo in hell. I'm talking about 1993, the year that made Nam look like a friggin' tea party. It was the year Brandon Tina, a dude who knew how to swing both ways, got fucked up the ass by society and ended up six feet under in Humboldt, Nebraska. Brandon was born with tits but knew he was a man trapped in a woman's body. He lived his life like it was his last rodeo, dressing like a guy and chasing cowboys like they owed him money. But you know what they say about good times? They never last. One fateful night, Brandon hooked up with some roughnecks who thought it would be funny to teach him a lesson. They dragged him out into the sticks, stripped him naked, and took turns raping him until he could barely breathe. Then they left him for dead, like he was roadkill on Route 66. The locals tried to sweep it under the rug like it never happened, but Brandon's story didn't stay buried for long. His tale of terror sparked a firestorm of outrage across the country and led to increased advocacy for hate crime laws that would protect people like him from violence based on their gender identity. His story even made it to the big screen in movies like The Brandon Tina Story and Boys Don't Cry, which showed the world just how brutal life could be for transgender people back then. So, let this be a lesson to all you rednecks out there. Next time you see someone who doesn't fit your idea of what a man or woman should look like, don't judge them or try to hurt them, because you never know what kind of fight they might put up. This is Ken Shit signing off from the past. May we never forget the price paid by brave souls like Brandon Tina who dared to be different. This is the Stone, 1999. Boris Yeltsin's resignation has left the reins of Russia in the hands of Vladimir Putin, the acting president. Putin, no stranger to power, has been a constant presence in Russian politics since 1999, holding positions as president or prime minister. With an iron grip reminiscent of Stalin, Putin has become the longest-serving Russian leader since the Soviet era. But what does this mean for Russia and its people? To shed light on the implications of this political shift, we turn to our resident political analyst, Hardiman Pesto. Welcome back to Newsbang. I'm Hardiman Pesto, reporting live from Moscow. Tonight, we're taking a trip down memory lane to the late 90s when a man named Vladimir Putin took the reins of power in Russia. Ah, uh, Pesto, you're at it again. Putin didn't take the reins in 1999. He became the acting president after Yeltsin's resignation. That's right, Martin. And it was a pivotal moment in Russian history. Putin has since become the longest-serving Russian leader since Stalin. You're forgetting something, Pesto. The acting president is a temporary post with limited power, held by the prime minister. Well, Martin, Putin certainly made the most of his time as acting president, and later as president and prime minister. You're glossing over the fact that Yeltsin was the first president of Russia, initially a member of the Communist Party, but later aligned with liberalism and Russian nationalism. That's true, Martin. Yeltsin was a complex figure who played a significant role in shaping modern Russia. And yet, you've managed to reduce his legacy to a footnote in Putin's story. I suppose I have, Martin. But that's the nature of the news, isn't it? We focus on the sensational and the new, often at the expense of the nuanced and the complex. Well, Pesto, I think that's enough history for one night. All right, Martin, thanks for setting me straight, and Happy New Year to all our viewers. Happy New Year, Pesto. 
Newsbang. The facts are out there, and we're going to find them. And now, here's Ryderboff, taking us back to the year 1972, a year marked by both tragedy and resilience. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the final evening show of 2023. I'm your host, Ryder Boff, and I'm here to take you on a journey through time all the way back to the year 1972. It was a year that saw the tragic death of Roberto Clemente, a Puerto Rican baseball player who was killed in a plane crash while delivering aid to victims of the Nicaragua earthquake. Despite the tragic loss, Clemente's legacy lived on as he was posthumously inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1973. But there was more to this year than just baseball. The 1972 Nicaragua earthquake caused significant casualties in Managua, with thousands killed, injured and left homeless. It was a devastating event that will forever be remembered in the annals of history. Now let's take a trip back to the year 1972, where we meet a young man named Carlos. Carlos was just six years old when the earthquake struck, and he remembers it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was playing with my friends in the park when the ground started shaking, he recalls. We ran to the nearest shelter, but it was already packed with people. We could hear the screams of those who were trapped under the rubble. It was a terrifying experience that I will never forget. In Abati and Aifonaisei. And speaking of terrifying experiences, let's not forget the horrifying fate of Roberto Clemente. The man was an angel on earth, delivering aid to those in need, and yet he was tragically taken from us in a freak accident. It's a reminder that even the best of us are not immune to the cruel hands of fate. But despite the tragedy, there is hope. The people of Nicaragua have come together to rebuild their country, and they're making progress every day. It's a true testament to the resilience of the human spirit. So as we close out this year, let's remember the events of 1972 and the people who were affected by them. Let's take a moment to reflect on the progress that has been made and the progress that still needs to be made. And let's look forward to a brighter future where tragedy and loss are a thing of the past. Until next time, good night. Bang, slicing through the shadow of lies. Our very own Sandy O'Shaughnessy, the Chronicle Queen, takes us back to 1857 when Queen Victoria made Ottawa the capital of the British colony of Canada. A stroll down memory lane indeed. Nice and easy. Ah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome. Welcome and thrice welcome to the grand finale of another year. It's that time again when we gather around the radio waves, raise a glass of something warm and comforting, and take a nostalgic journey through the annals of history. And who better to guide us through this royal revelry than your old mate, Sandy O'Shaughnessy? Ah. <laughs> now, let's turn the clock back to 1857. The year is 1857. Queen Victoria chose Ottawa as the capital of the British colony of Canada. Ottawa is located in Ontario and is the fourth largest city in Canada. Ah, Queen Victoria, 
a monarch so regal that she could make even the most mundane decision sound like an act of divine intervention. I can just imagine her saying, Ottawa it is, a fine choice indeed. Huh? <laughs> you see, dear listeners, history has its own way of turning the pages, from one capital city to another, from one reign to another. It's all part of this grand narrative we call life. And as we bid farewell to 2023 and welcome in 2024, let's remember that every end is a new beginning. Ah. <laughs> Speaking of beginnings, I received a heartwarming letter from young Sean in Dublin today. He writes about his dreams of becoming a king someday. Not just any king, mind you, but King Sandy O'Shaughnessy. Well, Sean... While I appreciate your enthusiasm and your royal ambitions, I must inform you that my crown is purely ceremonial and doesn't come with any actual power or authority. But hey, ah. <laughs> and as we say our final goodbyes to this year gone by, let's take a moment to reflect on all that we have accomplished together, both big and small. Whether it was discovering a new recipe for blackie toffee or simply enjoying each other's company, over a cup of tea on these cozy Sunday afternoons. Every moment has been precious and cherished. Ah. <laughs> so here's to another year filled with laughter, love, and plenty more history lessons along the way. As we count down these final minutes together tonight, remember, it's not goodbye. It's just, see you later, alligator. In a while, crocodile. From me, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, Wishing you all a happy new year. All over the Today, in 1759, a legend was born. Arthur Guinness, with a flourish of his quill, inked a 9,000 year lease for the St. James's Gate Brewery in Dublin. The sum? A mere 45 punts per annum. And so the stage was set for the birth of an empire an Irish dry stout empire. Guinness, a name synonymous with Dublin, has conquered the globe one pint at a time. Now Perkins Stornoway delves into the frothy depths of this historic deal and the global domination that followed. The day started with the usual business. Dogger, slight or moderate. In 1759, Arthur Guinness signed a 9,000-year lease at 45 punts per annum to the St. James's Gate Brewery in Dublin and began brewing Guinness. Guinness is an Irish dry stout that originated in the brewery of Arthur Guinness at St. James's Gate, Dublin, Ireland, in 1759. It is now owned by Diageo and is one of the most successful alcohol brands worldwide. The day also marked the introduction of the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, ERM2, in 1998. The year is 1998. The European Exchange Rate Mechanism, ERM2, was introduced to establish the value of the euro and reduce exchange rate variability. It is part of the European Monetary System, EMS, and aims to achieve monetary stability in Europe. The euro is the official currency of 20 member states of the European Union and is divided into 100 euro cents. However, the day ended with some unusual business. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. Guinness, 2.4 up 88 very slightly. 
Rockall, West, becoming variable four. The pound, rising seventy-two million pounds, twenty-one three fifty-six. Fitzroy, slight, occasionally poor. One German, Fennig, zero point four and a half. The business markets, Shannon, occasionally rough. The cat, up two point four. The euro, still fractious in the nines and sevens. The pound, a brief look at the currency, Susan. The pound's value is effectively amputated, with a rogue leg with no hip constituency at all. Thames, fog patches, moderate or good. And so the business day ends with a glance at the currency, Susan. Rockall, west or northwest, three or four. The pound, in a popular Susan, with bad ears. Fair Isle, fair. Trafalgar, west, occasionally moderate. The euro, establishing value, and the pound, rising. Business. 1961. Today marks the diamond jubilee of RTE, Ireland's esteemed public service broadcaster. Established in 1961, RTE has been a beacon of Irish culture, history and news, gracing television, radio and digital waves. Headquartered in Dublin, with offices scattered across the Emerald Isle, RTE has played a pivotal role in shaping Ireland's identity. Now, to delve deeper into the rich tapestry of RTE's six-decade journey, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, y'all ready for some wild and wacky history, babes? Like, for real. Let me get this straight. People used to watch TV without the internet, like work yogurt, and now like, hello RTE, change the game girl. Okay, so this epic broadcaster premiered on this fantabulous day in 1961. Yeah, like OG, I know. And let me tell you, it was a game changer. Like, have you seen those old timey TVs with the rabbit ears? Golly, right? But seriously though, RTE was like, the first television network in Ireland, and it marked the beginning of a new era in Irish entertainment. Like, you couldn't escape the TV, y'all. It was like, the only thing to do after a long day of shoveling potatoes and drinking Guinness was to plop down on the couch and watch some RTE goodness. So RTE was like the star of the show, broadcasting programs on television, radio, and online. And let me tell you, they had some iconic shows back in the day. I mean, who could forget the classic Irish soap opera, Glenroe, or the hilarious comedy show, The Late Late Show. And let's not forget about the legendary children's show, Wanderly Ways. But it wasn't all fun and games, y'all. RTE had to deal with some serious challenges in its early days. Like, can you imagine trying to broadcast a show without the internet? It's like the Dark Ages, y'all. But RTE persevered and they became one of the oldest public service broadcasters in the world. Now, RTE is headquartered in Dublin, and they have offices across Ireland. And let me tell you, they're still going strong after all these years. They're like the granddaddy of Irish entertainment, and they've got a legacy that's hard to beat. So, that's it for this throwback report. RTE, the broadcaster that brought Ireland into the modern age, and the reason we can't escape the TV, y'all. That's all, folks. Tune in next time for more fabulous throwbacks and more TV-related shenanigans than you can shake a remote at. 
News bang, squeezing the truth out of the headlines. All right, it's time to wrap up tonight's show with a sneak peek at tomorrow's headlines. The Times leads with Stalin's secretary defects to Iran. There's a picture of a man with a briefcase looking very suspicious. The Telegraph goes for Norfolk, Virginia, a town toast. I suppose they mean toasted as in burnt to a crisp. The Guardian opts for 80 Wehrmacht prisoners killed in Shenonia. There's a graph there of a downward spiral. The Mirror has Boris the Bazooka Bolts from Bolsheviks. I'm not sure if they're talking about the same Boris. And finally, the sun goes for Stalin's secret lover in Iranian spa. I guess they're trying to spice things up a bit. Well, that's all for tonight's show. Remember, if you don't like the news, go and make some of your own. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Thank you.